Hi, I'm Beck. And I'm Khadija. We're members of the Stratford Festival Acting Company. And we are proud, happy, excited to bring you the Everyday Forum podcast, a Stratfest at home original showcasing thought-provoking discussions from the Stratford Festival's Me and Forum. The Stratford Festival's Me and Forum is like a mini festival within the festival designed to enhance and inform your experience through compelling discussions, exciting performances, and enlightening interactive multi-sensory events and workshops. Each episode will tell you who we're hearing from, the themes of the episode's featured forum event, and we'll also share some helpful definitions with you. We are here with a curated list of events from the 2023 season, bringing the stage to your home through this podcast. We're here to provide contextual insight. And to connect the conversation to wherever you might be. Or where you might be headed. Thank you so much for listening. We're glad you chose. We're thrilled to facilitate this fusion of minds. Enjoy. Yeah, okay. This one, oh God, I can't get over this new obsession I have with Margaret Atwood. Yeah, sign me up uh, for the club. It took me a, a, an embarrassing amount of time to realize what the word adaptation meant in the context of this conversation. Like, Ooh. I know what adaptation means, but I think... I, as an actor and a writer, throw the word around for a, a lot. But listening to these two incredible writers, Margaret Atwood and Emma Donahue, talk about adaptation and the vulnerability that comes from having their work adapted. There are many, many, many works adapted. I'm inspired. Like, Margaret Atwood has... 42 years of screen <laughs> adaptation of her works. That's incredible. I just looked up the definition of adaptation and the definition I kind of understood. And then there is, what is adaptation? Five examples. Mm. Long necks of giraffes for feeding on tops of trees. Streamlined bodies of aquatic fish and mammals. The light bones of flying birds and mammals. The long dagger-like canine teeth of carnivores. I'm like, yes, yes, yes. Margaret Atwood grows fangs for her books so that they can become shows. Oh, God. <laughs> the art shifting form to adapt to the needs of the consumer. I mean, consumer makes it sound like something that it's, you know, something very other than what it is, but we are consuming. Mm -hmm. We are consuming Absolutely. the art. So much so, digesting, it changes us. Mm -hmm. Then we... <laughs> <laughs> I really like this one too, because I find there's intimacy when uh, it's two folks chatting with each other. Yeah. So the back and forth is really... Uh, there's a jovial spirit that keeps me, ooh, like investigating and excited the whole time. And you can really s sense the reverence they have for one another. You know, there's a great deal of respect between these two individuals, these two artists, these two craftspeople. And their experiences are so different mm -hmm. for this this job, this role, the novelist. Their function in adaptation can differ so greatly. Also, let's bring back radio dramas. My Good God. Hit me. The multi-voice audiobook <laughs> as a descendant of radio dramas. Mm -hmm. CBC, you made a mistake. Wow. I've done a few audiobooks and 
<laughs> the challenge of having to change your voice from one character to another, it would just be so much easier with another person. Beck, I'm next, in. next audiobook, you're doing it with me. Margaret. <laughs> Margaret, over here. I want to say before we jump in that if anyone has any insight, because this was something I did not know, there's a reference to the difference between New York and Hollywood directors and producers. I was like, oh, I don't know that. What's the vibe? I feel like I know the vibe. Okay. I can feel it, but I don't actually know it. I've been to (laughs) New York a few times. Mm -hmm. I've never been to LA or Hollywood rather, but there's an inherent difference in the way that they those two cities feel yeah I imagine I love that and then my second one is I have to say this because I'm very excited uh we're told that theater is the sweet spot for adaptation because actors are so respectful (laughs) I am an actor what are you I'm a multi-hyphenate babe (laughs) actor writer director producer star okay hyphen want to jump in let's do it good morning My name is Julie Miles, and I'm the director of the Me and Forum, and whose phone is on? <laughs> thank you. Thank you for shutting your phone off. Um, well, it's been quite a weekend, hasn't it? It's been a pretty amazing weekend. And, but all good things need to come to an end, and I'm glad you could join us for the final installment of our Readers and Writers series. On my journey in today, I was in awe of the countryside around Stratford, the wildlife and the beautiful rivers and the waterways that surround us. And in those, and those moments remind me to give thanks and recognize the Anishinaabe, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, the Wendat, and the Attawandaronk for being the steadfast stewards of this land for thousands of years. All of us are responsible for taking care of this land for the future and future generations. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce our special guest today. Emma Donahue is an award-winning novelist, screenwriter, and playwright. Her novel, Room, has sold almost three million copies, won the Rogers Writers Trust Fiction Prize, the Commonwealth Writers Prize, and was shortlisted for the Man, Booker, and Orange Prizes. Emma also scripted the film adaptation, which was nominated for four Academy Awards, including Best Picture. Her fiction ranges from the contemporary to the historical and includes two books for young readers. Margaret Atwood's work has been published in more than 45 countries, and she is the author of more than 50 books of fiction, poetry, and critical essays and graphic novels. She's the recipient of numerous international awards, including co-winner of the 2019 Booker Prize and the Franz Kafka International Literary Prize. Her novel, The Handmaid's Tale, has been adapted into a long-running television series and has received numerous primetime Emmys and Golden Globe Awards. Please join me in welcoming to the stage Emma Donahue and Margaret Atwood. Good morning. Good morning to you, Margaret. I'm getting an unholy thrill from actually being on this stage instead of just out there. (laughs) Hallowed space. So who's going to kick off? I'm going to kick off because I'm I'm actually for once did some notes. I never usually prep anything, but, you know, because this is with you, I thought. (laughs) (laughs) All the more reason not to prep it. (laughs) It'll go off the rails pretty quickly. That's true. Uh, By my reckoning, there have been screen adaptations of your fiction, which is what we're going to try and keep this conversation to, for 42 years. And in my experience, the the average 
screen watcher or cinema goer um, has no real understanding of how writers, how the writers of a novel or a short story, how they are involved in the process of something coming to screen. And I know that can range from no involvement to lots of involvement. So just to establish that sort of spectrum, um, could you give us an example of, of one of your works which ended up on screen and you, you had really very, very little to do with it? I'll give you a better example, which is one that didn't end up on screen and I had a lot to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, if only they knew how many of our projects die in the water long before yeah, anyone spends it, the money on filming them. <laughs> it is, I think the estimate is, you know, for, for every thousand proposed, a hundred uh, get to the script stage and for every hundred that get to the script stage, one might get made. Uh, so just because you've got a contract doesn't mean anything, really. So here's my story. It is 1970. You weren't born. <laughs> I was. I was one year old. Yes, well, you were just barely born. Uh, and it was Edmonton, Alberta, in the depths of winter. Nee, 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 nee. Um, <laughs> it was in the age of wall phones. Some people remember wall phones and long-distance telephone calls that cost a lot of money. Ooh. Uh, and I was refinishing a toilet seat in my <laughs> rented flat, as one did, because once upon a time, and some of you will not remember this, they were not made of plastic, they were made of wood. Ooh. And uh, the wood was painted, and things could go wrong with that. <laughs> So I was scraping this a degraded paint job off the toilet seat and um, with the intention of repainting it, and the phone rang. And it was a long-distance call which purported to be from London, England. And it said, Hello, my name is Oscar Lewinstein. I'm a film producer in London, and we wish to make a film of your novel, Edible Woman, which had just come out. And I said, Who is this really? <laughs> <laughs> thinking that one of my pals was playing a practical joke on me, and he said, no, it really is Oscar Lewinstein, and, and, and we wish you to write the script. And I said, but I've never written a script. <laughs> he said, we will help you. And I said, oh, you don't want me, you want a, you want a professional scriptwriter. He said, we don't want some broken-down old Hollywood hack, <laughs> meaning you'll be cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> So that actually happened, and I, I hi-hoed off to Montreal, where I met Oscar Lewinstein, a, a fairly short man who did resemble quite a lot a parrot. This comes into the story later. And uh, we wrote the first script, which was with a Hungarian director. And he would have ideas, and I would then write the scenes, and it was very Hungarian, because he would say, Margaret, I had a dream last night, and there was a lot of purple in it. We must put purple in the film, so I put in the purple. Uh, uh, Margaret, I, I, I have a vision. We, we have never seen a naked woman wrapped in cellophane. We must wrap. <laughs> I feel and, we've seen a lot of them since. Uh, yes. <laughs> but perhaps not in 1970. Was, yes, no. You hadn't come along yet. Uh, <laughs> we hadn't seen any naked women wrapped in cellophane. And we didn't see this one either, because it never got made. Um, so then 
he, uh, Oscar had a falling out with his co-producer who was called John Kemeny. And he later went on to make a cult film called Quest for Fire. That was the one in which they put fur on elephants and said they were mammoths. Do you remember? No, you don't remember. Yeah. Clearly, I should have seen that. I thought this it film. was kind of great, actually. Um, but he did that later. So they had a fight, and, and um, one of them was going to buy it from the other one. And I thought it would be John winning out over Oscar, but it was Oscar. Oscar ended up with it because he had an ace up his sleeve. And the ace up his sleeve was Tony Richardson, who had agreed to direct it. And Tony had a long string of uh, films to his credit, uh, including Tom Jones, which had been a big hit. So off I went um, to the south of France, where I was going anyway, by the way. So I was actually quite cheap. Um, <laughs> and working with Tony, and that was a completely different script. Uh, it was a lot more like a sort of English comedy. And um, this took place in his enclave above Saint-Tropez, which was a, a hill village that he had bought from Jean Moreau. So it didn't have any people in it, and I said, Tony, what happened to the people who were living in these houses? He said, they intermurdered each other. So. <laughs> So then he would say, we, have, we need to have a scene like this, which would be some piece of farce, and I would write that. And that's mostly how it goes, because script writing for movies is like summer camp. The weather's great and you like the people, it's lots of fun. If the weather's terrible and you hate the people, it's hell. And I've done both. <laughs> so that's my perspective. And one of the big problems we had to solve with the script was, how do you depict what people are thinking? And it was actually proposed at one point that we should have cartoon-like thought bubbles <laughs> appear over the characters' heads with the dialogue in them. That didn't happen. Um, so to voice over or not to voice over, one of the big problems. So what was your, that was my first, and it went on from there. I did write other screenplays that did get produced, and some of them were of things I had done, and some of them were original things that I wrote for TV. And the big question, of course, which we'll come to later, is how much did I have to do with The Handmaid's Tale? Um, I, didn't want to delete, I didn't want to lead with that. Yes. The yeah, idea that, you yeah. know, we'd put we, you to the pin of your collar for, we really, how much of a share in the praise yeah. for the TV do you get? Yeah, 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 we'll do that later. We'll you do are that the in origin of all this. Yeah, you, you have to wait. You have to wait for the answer to that. <laughs> uh, what was your first one? Um, disastrous and coming to nothing. Yeah, my, my first novel was optioned by an Irish producer who, um, I would say, for me, the main difference between, say, um, fiction and theatre and film is that with fiction and theatre, I remember how many drafts there were because there's a limited <laughs> number. With screenwriting, you just you end up in this broken state, even if you've been enjoying it. The number of different notes they give you from different people at different points, and you're never quite sure will it be made. And at a certain point, you're just trudging along, doing what they say. So I remember my low point with my first one, Stir Fry, was when um, the young producer rang me up and said that he'd, he'd heard a good joke on Sex and the City last night, and he wanted me to put that in the script. <laughs> and 
I have to report to my shame. I did. I did. <laughs> I just, I didn't see any way out. I just thought onwards, the only escape is onwards. And luckily, the film was never made. Um, yeah. And I would say nowadays, I'm a bit more assertive. Um, the most assertive thing I do, actually, I don't sign any contract until we're just about to film it. I do what they call an attachment, where it's like you do a little dance with each other, but you don't actually sign anything. And they pay you nothing, but equally, you haven't, given away, you haven't sold the rights. So you do this delicate dance, and you all work quite hard on it together, but nobody signs until the thing is about to be made. So, so that way, retain a bit of control over what's in it. Absolutely. So if they, if they propose anything utterly unacceptable, I could just back out. I haven't had to with those attachment agreements, but I find it, it, it gives me much more um, power in a situation where, sort of by definition, the so novel are you writing the script? Are you actually yes. doing that? Yeah, yeah I've, only, I've only had a few such projects, but in each case, I've written the script, yes. Right. And I would say maybe two have been made of about eight or nine. So I realize that's a pretty good percentage. That's quite, quite good. But yeah. it's still heartbreaking, the six that, that are thrown away, because I'm used to fiction. Well, don't throw where... them away, you just keep them in a drawer. <laughs> actually, with one of my many projects that came to nothing, I anticipated it, that it might come to nothing, and so I put in the film contract, can I reuse this as a book? And they were like, okay, we don't care about books. <laughs> so <laughs> I think it's wise to be mentally prepared for, for any screen project not getting made. Yeah. That's a really good plan. Wish I'd thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> but who knew anything about film contracts in, in uh, 1970 in Canada? Like, nobody knew nothing. Um, and people expect you to be grateful to have your work optioned or sold. They just expect that you're, you know, that you've been visited by the Hollywood fairy and that you'll be thrilled to bits and that this is more exciting than any fiction you've ever published. And I find that a, a slightly dispiriting reaction from friends that they're so bedazzled by, by the word film. What can you do? Yeah, <laughs> people watch a lot of TV. That's what it amounts to. Um, so the rule seems to be if it's a good film or television adaptation, it sells more books. And if it's a bad one, it doesn't. Do you think if it's a bad one, it actually puts people off our books? I think it does. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, have you ever disliked an adaptation so much that you felt free to say so in public, or have you always maintained it? Well, I said so in private. <laughs> but that one didn't get made in any way. Excellent. <laughs> and I'll tell you what it was. It was a first go at Handmaid's Tale television series, and it had a scene in it in which the resistant spiders, female, uh, were going into battle uh, with their machine guns and their tops off. And I said, <laughs> why are their tops off? <laughs> nobody would do this. I mean, nobody. I mean, not even men. <laughs> You'd have to be an absolute lunatic. You'd have to be Arnold Schwarzenegger and a robot to be doing this. And something where the bullets would bounce off. I mean, it's just the stupidest thing I ever heard of. Um, and the answer was, it's television. To which, that is no excuse. I mean, you, you, would lose, you would lose people right there if you had not lost them before. When you first agree to, to work with people on an adaptation, do you have in your mind certain deal breakers, certain things oh, yeah. about your story that oh, you yeah. know? Yeah? Oh, yeah. Um, but usually what you, you do is you, um, you talk to the people beforehand to get an idea of what they think they're going to do and what their take on the project is. 
but with Handmaid's Tale, it's a long and winding story because we made a film in 1989 and the producer was Danny Wilson. He said his wife made him do it. Uh, he was a New York producer, not a Hollywood one, so it was somewhat different. And he hired Harold Pinter to write the screenplay, who did it. And um, the director was the tin drum director, who was Volker Schlorndorf. And I think, I think the problem in 1989 is that nobody in Europe or just before 1989, you'll recall the wall came down in 89. Nobody in Europe believed that America would ever do such a thing. Ooh. <laughs> uh, they didn't, you know, they, they So thought, the audience wasn't ready? Uh, the filmmakers were not ready. Uh, so I don't think they really believed the premise. Uh, which is solidly based in history and fact, but they did not know that because before the wall went down, Europe fervently wished to believe that America was a land of truth, beauty, openness, democracy, and all things good, uh, and that did, it did not have this uh, darker shadow side, which, of course, every country does, including, I have to say, Canada. Um, so they just they weren't fully believing in it. Whereas the people making the TV adaptation of today are fully invested in it because they know. <laughs> well, we all know now because we've seen it in action. Um, so, so, so therefore we had a contract in 1989 and it's, it had um, television rights in the contract. But what was television? series, what was the television series in 1989? It was daytime soaps, or it was Dallas. So I thought the, the chances of this ever being made into a series television are zero. Uh, it's like so those clauses that say, dolls will be made of your main character. That's right. Like, yeah, okay. dolls will be made. Yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> some some of our contracts include rights for technologies not yet invented. Yeah, they do. They all include that now. <laughs> They, even book contracts include that. They, they're covering all their bases, having been caught short on the e-books. <laughs> uh, so that film got made. The rights then got sold to a distribution company. Distribution company went bankrupt, and the contract disappeared into the mountain with Gollum. Nobody... <laughs> Nobody knew where it had gone. Nobody knew who had bought this thing. Nobody knew who had it. So for years, people were saying... What a thing to mislay. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it just sort of... who People forgot. Um, it vanished. And I couldn't make any other deals because nobody knew who had the rights. So then, one day, a ray of sunshine came through the window, illuminating a filing cabinet drawer. Somebody opened the drawer and inside was the contract. And that was an MGM. And just in time, because streaming had just, television had just been invented, which has been a boon to novel writers, especially those who write longer novels, um, just in time for that to happen. And therefore, that's how all that came about. But I had no control at that point because it was in the original contract and somebody owned that contract. Ooh. 
And when, when it first arose as a realistic possibility, um, how did you feel about it? Did you anticipate any of the success no. of this project? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's best with adaptation never to anticipate anything, uh, because you'll probably be wrong. And um, why be disappointed? Better to be pleasantly surprised if something actually good does happen, because the chances are fairly slim. Let us uh, be frank about that. You can have a very good script, you can have a stellar cast, and it can still be bad. You can have a little-known uh, script writer and a cast that nobody really knows, and it'll be an amazing surprise hit. You yeah. just don't know. Yeah, there are too many variables. Very, yeah. Many, many variables, and a lot depending on people's egos and whether they're having fights and uh, who's left with whom and all of these unknown things that we don't, that we can't control. And even just their availability, the scheduling. Yeah, um, yeah, well, I'm busy, yes, like that. I had a project fall through because the producers fixated on this particular actor and she wasn't available. I'm thinking, surely somebody else could have played the role well, but it is funny they, how they... They didn't want anybody but that person. No. Yes, well, we get people, as it, as it were, I think the word is attached. Yeah, they get attached to the project in some strange way that we don't understand. Um, so tell me about the first one that you wrote that did get made. So um, um, I, I really hadn't had any luck sort of breaking into film writing, which can seem like a really closed world compared with other forms of writing. Um, but then when Room was sold as a novel, um, there was interest in it as a film, even before the novel was published. So I thought, this is my moment. I'll write you know, the script cheap, before cheap, anyone cheap can stop me. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, oddly enough, we had a very expensive special effect of... of um, um, at one point, the heating is turned off by the psychopath, and the, the boy wakes up and sees his breath, a dragon's breath effect. And um, they had to achieve this by CGI. It's the most expensive mm. shot. And, you know, a week later, it was snowing in Toronto, so they could have just opened the doors. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but on the day, they needed the CGI. Um, so, yes, I, I, I sort of got myself a stack of 20 books on screenwriting from, from the library at Western and... and tried writing a screenplay of Room just before it was published because I thought, you know, this is my chance to at least try and be the writer on this film rather than them putting a professional in. Um, so, so luckily that worked for me. Um, I worked with a small Irish company, so it was a very indie kind of film. It was all filmed in Canada with mostly Canadian stars. Um, we managed to find The Child, for instance, in Vancouver, which then allowed us one and a half Americans by, by um, Screen Canada ruling. So we were allowed Brie Larson and um, uh, the smaller role of... of um, you were allowed one and a half Americans? <laughs> <laughs> a big role and a small role, and then I think, yeah, William H. Macy has counted as a cameo. There are very strict rules about the funding of Canadian films. Um, so it's an Irish-Canadian film, and so it was never sort of a big Hollywood studio-style film. So you had a lot more control. Loads of control. And as I say, I had this kind of attachment ag agreement where they really they had to stay on my good side all the way through. I mean, of course, the film is still ultimately the director's film. That's how film really is. There's no screenwriter in the world who they let decide on everything. <laughs> well, they, they would be mad. And similarly, if they let the author of the book decide on anything. Um, I don't like the I don't like the necktie we're cancelling, you know. It's, it would be like that. So um, I had a great experience on Room, I have to say, and um, and um, then 
with The Wonder, which I made more recently with Sebastian Lelio, um, I was the initial screenwriter on that, and then he got in on the screenplay as well, and so did a third writer. But at no point have I made a film that I haven't written, so I don't have that experience. I've only had the fully involved kind. Lucky you, dear. I know. <laughs> there haven't been that many, or, or rather, many of them have ended up, you know, in, in the filing cabinet forever, yes. you know. Um, but um, on the question of um, sort of deal-breaker moments, I remember with The Wonder, because it's about this starving child, and my one real deal-breaker was, like, the kid can't die. You know, I thought, they can change anything else, they can set it somewhere else if they want, it doesn't have to be 19th century Ireland, but the kid can't die. And I remember a meeting with the director... Is that in the film or in real life? (laughs) (laughs) No real child has died on my watch yet, I'm pretty sure. Yes, in the film, I thought the kid couldn't die, and I had a meeting with one director, and she was you know, a bit, sounding a bit high-handed about what she would do with this story. And I said to her at one point, would the kid definitely survive? And she said, I'd have to decide that as we went along. <laughs> I thought, oh, really? No yeah. to her. So um, that was a case where I was glad I had not yes. sold the rights. Yeah, I was exactly. still able to say a definite no. Yes, right. Are there, are there projects you have withdrawn your work from because you sensed that they were going to make some terrible well, there, decisions? Well, there, there were people I didn't go with because I thought they were going to make you know, maidens in leather or something like that. Um, but it's yes. hard to know at the start. Sometimes they, they speak very wooingly to you at the start. It's all about respecting your work. Of course they do. Why, why would they do otherwise? <laughs> You're going to go, I don't respect your work. <laughs> no. Um, so you just have to ask several different other kinds of questions, such as how would you handle this, how would you handle that? And with the... Uh, Handmaid's Tale present day adaptation the showrunner is a guy called Bruce Miller who talked himself into it, into the job because he had read the book as a teenager and I think a lot of things happen like this he read it as a teenager, fell in love with it and decided that when he grew up that's what he wanted to do so he knew the material very very thoroughly and was able to talk himself into the job and when we were doing the initial publicity, he would, he would go on stage and say, Hi, I'm Bruce Miller. I'm the, I'm the showrunner of The Handmaid's Tale, and I've got one penis too many. <laughs> <laughs> then he'd say, But I hired a lot of women, which he did. He hired a lot of women for the writing room, naively believing, said he, that they would all agree with each other. <laughs> Wasn't that cute? So cute. Um, so... I, I do have phone conversations with him uh, in which he explains what he's doing and why he's doing it. And I said at one point, you are not allowed to kill Aunt Lydia. And he said, well, I wasn't going to. And I said, well, you stuck a knife in her and threw her over the balcony. He said, <laughs> he said she's recovering in hospital. <laughs> Then I said, you're not killing that baby. Pause. I said, you're not killing that baby. So that would have been a, that wouldn't have, I wouldn't have had control, but I, I had, I wouldn't have had a public voice on that subject. Don't kill the baby. You're credited as, I think, uh, um, what's the word? Consulting producer. Oh, what does that mean? Yeah, what does that mean? <laughs> it means you have conversations uh, over the phone while you're out in the sidewalk in, in Toronto. Don't kill the baby! <laughs> sitting under a tree saying, don't kill the baby, and attracting 
pedestrian attention. <laughs> and when passers-by hear you having conversations, they probably know who you are as well. <laughs> they might, but I, ju I just think hearing anybody saying that into a phone is a <laughs> Next stop, the police. Uh, yes, so like that. I'm glad you've emphasized those initial conversations, the deciding who to work with, because in a way that is our main power, isn't it? It's that, like that who is, you go to the dance with. Yeah, that is it. And um, yeah, things can go horribly wrong if, if you go to the dance with the wrong person, for sure. And then sometimes you go to the dance with one person and they leave and somebody else turns up and says, I'll be your escort now. I mean, that is there exactly are bewildering right. changes in personnel. That's exactly decades. right. Yes, that's what that happens too. So, so you don't have any control over any of those factors as the writer of the book or even if you're a screenwriter for hire. If you're a screenwriter on your own project, as you have been and you've retained control, that is about the only position. Or if you're a producer and you've put money in, that, that gives you some control. Um, I also think that um, people misunderstand... For instance, if it's a case where we don't write the actual episode, they might think that we have no input when I think often um, there's a, there are conversations that you can be in on about things like casting or, or who the heads of department, I'm thinking like cinematographer and the, the you know, sound. So you're so extremely on. involved, like really hands-on. But involved, I suppose, is the word for it. It's, it's not a control issue. But I, I, I found, say, with, with um, casting that I didn't have final say on anything, but I could at least make suggestions and propose, you know, Canadian actors who, who um, the Irish film company mightn't have heard of, that kind of thing. But, but yes, you can't kid yourself about having complete control over any of these areas. Well, nobody in a film actually does. Possibly the editor, the film editor, uh, has quite a, quite a bit of, makes quite a few choices. Um, so a lot of it is quite simply luck, I have to say. In, in my case, where I have much less involvement, much less control, um, you, you just get lucky sometimes and other times you get unlucky. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned the editor because I think um, audiences have very little understanding of how important the editing is in that some people would say that a screenplay is written you know, first on your computer, again, really in practice when it's being filmed and a third time when it's being edited. So I got to be in the editing suite for two days for a room and I kept saying, when are you going to put in the, the bit where she describes how she had a first baby that was stillborn? I mean, I considered this a key element of the storyline but I was watching them edit that whole sequence where the conversation should have come up, and I realized that actually there was no moment where you could put it in without it feeling like this awful sort of lurch, you know, turning backwards and harping on old sorrows. And I thought, actually, that sequence, you know, almost like a piece of music, it's going to wreck that sequence if we mm. stuff in that bit of story. So I, I finally got it about editing and about the sort of flow of it all rather than it being about, you know, information. And so that was, you know, very educational for me. Um, have there been, what is it I'm going to ask? Are there times that, when, that, that you have agreed to things in the, in the film or TV making process and afterwards you think, I shouldn't have? <laughs> well, have it doesn't them. matter whether I agree to them or not. <laughs> if, if they're going to do what they're going to do, you can agree or disagree, but you don't have the final say. 
true, but are there any you feel bitter about or you, you wish you had pulled out or wish you hadn't worked with those people? <laughs> you don't have to name them. I'm just saying, has it come up? <laughs> Let me count the ways. <laughs> yeah, actually, you, you tend not to remember the ones that don't work out. Um, yeah, for sure. And, and things have gone, things that seem quite promising have gone... Um, belly up and uh, all sorts of things can happen but sometimes it's too many producers all of whom wish to have a say um, sometimes it's um, you know just accidents of fate as I say there's a lot of luck involved so writers of novels are essentially megalomaniac control freaks and uh, nobody uh, nobody gets to to say over your head what shall be in the book, and and the bug stop, stops with you when it's published. No matter what this editor or that editor has said or proposed, the words there are yours, and you are responsible for them, positive and negative. Whereas in a film, there's just so many people involved. If if you look at the credits rolling after after a film, you think, there's been 200 people at least involved in this, uh, doing all kinds of things. And it's, it's a group effort, and, and you can't, um, when you're assigning blame <laughs> or praise, it's, it's really difficult to apportion it, um, to give everybody credit where they deserve credit, to, give, to put the blame where the blame might possibly reside. Jove, Aphrodite, you know, one of those people was mad at you. <laughs> I find people often assume that, you know, we're there on set as the ultimate, you know, um, decision maker or at least source of inspiration that, you know, that I, they would say to me, like, what advice did you give Brie Larson? Yeah, like, any, thinking, like anybody would listen to you. Yes, and also <laughs> the, the ticking clock. I mean, on set, every moment is costing so much. You know, if there was any insight I hadn't managed to put into the script, it is too late on the day to say, oh, Brie, I have some advice for you. You know? Yeah, exactly. um, there's, there's a terrible sense of urgency on set and so much, in fact, waiting around for practical purposes. But, so are you on the set all the time? No, I've been on the set um, just, just for visits really and I, yes. I, I really try and zip it at that point. Yes, I visited the, the set of The Handmaid's Tale the movie back in 1988 which they were filming at Duke University because Harvard doesn't let you film there. So snooty. Uh, yes, they did disapproved of my book quite a lot when it first came out. They were quite sniffy about it. Uh, they didn't like the bodies hanging on the Harvard wall. They took exception to that. <laughs> we would never hang bodies on our wall. Um, but they I came, had Tropicana they came refused to let um, me use their orange juice in the film. They didn't want to be associated with kidnap scenarios. Well, I would think not, yes. <laughs> yeah, you could have got other orange juice. And we got another wall. You know, there's other walls around. <laughs> Uh, but we were filming at Duke, and we were filming the scene where the some recalcitrant handmaids are getting hanged with bags over their heads and, and people pulling on their feet. And at that moment, the door to the Duke chapel opened, and out came a wedding rehearsal party. <laughs> <laughs> they, they were quite ticked off. They didn't think this was appropriate at all. Uh, so you do have those kinds of... 
adventures uh, on, on sets. So there was a very, I'll mention another very successful adaptation, which was Sarah Pauli's Alias Grace. Yeah. And, and again, am I right? She had loved that book for decades. Yeah, she wrote she came me a letter when she was 17 years old and, a, and an actor saying she abs absolutely had to make this movie. And I said, maybe not quite yet. <laughs> <laughs> and then she got into a position where she could make it. And we um, talked about it extensively. And then a series of accidents intervened. Number one, she had a very difficult pregnancy that put her into hospital. It was okay, it worked out. Um, but we couldn't make it during that. Uh, then she had a fire extinguisher fall on her head, which gave her a concussion. Uh, really affected her ability to think, so we waited. And we waited, because um, you go with the one who loves you. And she was very, very attached to that book for complicated reasons. Um, and we, we waited and waited, and finally she was able to make it, and that was great. I have a cameo in that, too. Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. I, I know that you were an aunt. You, you know that I whacked Elizabeth Moss over the head in, in Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, they, they added the sound effect, and we did have to film it four times, because she kept saying, hit me harder. I said, no, no, I, you know. <laughs> Ruin. <laughs> oh, come on, come on, come on! Give me insurance. Give me a slap. <laughs> uh, so, in in Alias Grace, I play a character called Unpleasant Woman. <laughs> One of the great archetypes. Well, it is. Yes, I have my own trailer. It said Unpleasant Woman <laughs> right on the door. And uh, I had to put on all this Victorian clothing, and it was about 32 degrees out. It was really hot. That stuff was made of wool. So no wonder I looked very unpleasant in the actual <laughs> scene. It was boiling hot. Um, but I have a very good unpleasant look in it. You can watch for it. Well, um, on the film of The Wonder, which is based on my novel, um, I had a classic film experience that I did a cameo, and then it was cut. So oh, really? <laughs> I, I suffered through the seven layers of clothing, the, their biggest corset, um, um, you know, the, the little shoes, uh, the You the had to wear hair. the shoes, too. Yeah, but I was Ireland in August, so I was cool at every point. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it, it's a classic extras experience to go through the whole day and then to see no trace of it in the final film. And I respected the director that he didn't think he should include it just because the author happened to be one of the extras, you know. So, yeah. no, I enjoyed it thoroughly. Have you got the footage? <laughs> yes, they gave oh, me the Right, yes. So it made it into our family, our family. Yeah, you can make video. a Christmas card out of it. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, I was not unpleasant woman. I was, you know, sort of um, aged mourner at at grave. I think I was. No, oh. I was waiting for the priest after mass. Well, that's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. No, and not as good as unpleasant, but good. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah Polly, did you find that in the long uh, years of, of waiting for the thing to be made, did the project, did its audience change too? Like, did anything change in its reception because of how Well, long we it don't know it? because we don't know about the test case. So what would it have been like if she had made it uh, when she first intended to make it? She first intended it as a film. And then she said, it's t there's too much for a film. It can be a limited series. So. 
that was the, one of the changes that happened, and I was fine with that because I think that this expanded form is really quite good for for longer, more complex works. So if you see the film of Great Expectations, the old one, it, it, it just feels very squished. And with films like that, you had to have read the book to know what was happening. So the film scenes are more like little references to a book that you already know. Um, whereas with the series, they can put in enough information. You know, you can actually follow the pretty convoluted plot. I agree. I don't think I've ever seen a Dickens one-off feature film that I thought worked, whereas the, the series form seems to work much well for him. So I suppose what I mean is, you know, that the delays and obstacles are frustrating at the time, but sometimes I think by the time something like Alias Grace comes out, I feel the circumstances have sort of ripened. The audience is, is ready in the More audience. More able to understand it. Yeah, and the audience now is very used to quite demanding long-form drama where they have to pay attention and remember what happened in the previous episode. And it's not a casual audience. No, it's not. If, if, you're going to, if you watch episode one and then are motivated enough to watch episode two, um, you're going to be following the plot. And I also think the kind of, you know, trickle-down of feminism into the broader culture has created audiences that are more ready to take these stories um, seriously and not have to add, you know, bare-chested warriors to make it appealing. <laughs> <laughs> now, with The Handmaid's Tale, because it's lasted so long, am I right, there's a sixth season. Um, so, story-wise, it must have, 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 you know, gone farther out from the book. A lot, yeah. Yeah, and so was, was that difficult? Because that wouldn't come up usually with a, a first adaptation, but when a series is ongoing, I suppose you have to sort of allow it to, to move farther from the book. You allow? <laughs> Again, I'm using words that imply we yeah. have more power than we have. Yeah, That's no, true. no, none at all. Um, yeah, so basically they covered the book in, in season one. And then they were, as it were, on their own. Uh, so the only thing that I can say about it is in, in real life in a totalitarian country, um, the Elizabeth Moss, June, Alfred character wouldn't have lasted two minutes. Like they would have had a bullet through her head a lot uh, in, in pretty rapid time. Um, I've been reading uh, Anna Funder's book called Stasi Land about East Germany. And they, they just, every, the place was riddled with spies. Uh, they had one spy for every 50 people in East Germany, like very thick with spies. So we premiered the film back in 89, 90, uh, as the wall was coming down. So I was there as the wall was coming down. I bought several pieces of it. Uh, colored were more expensive than plain. I think they went out at night and colored more so they would have more color pieces to sell. Um, but the, well, you would, wouldn't you? Um, the guards who were so scowly and unpleasant back in 84 when we were living in West Berlin were now very jolly. They were handing out cigars, getting their pictures taken. Uh, and we premiered it in West Germany, Berlin first. And the discussions afterwards were everything you might imagine about the aesthetics, the directing, the acting, and those kinds of movie things. We went across to East Berlin, first time this had happened since before the war, uh, and premiered it there, and it was a completely different experience. The audience was dead silent, just watching it like this. 
they threw all these bouquets up onto the stage afterwards and they said, this was our life. By which they did not mean the outfits. They meant the fact that you could not trust anybody. You did not know who was spying on you. And that is what it is like in a totalitarian state. And that's what all of this um, uproar about surveillance and people spying at you on you through your computer and um, to a certain extent AI, you know, that's what it's about. How much surveillance um, can you put up with without, without it being a completely totalitarian situation? When they're on, say, season six, and it has moved farther from the events of your novel, do they consult you less, or do they still see you as the kind of, you know, guiding spirit of the enterprise? No, I don't think that's what they see me as. I think they see me as some sort of um, pagan idol who has to be propitiated. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah. you know, better than an Easter Island face, you know, yeah, face like down that. in the yeah. sand, so, not so appreciated. So lest I strike them with the thunderbolt of uh, social media. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they want, to, they want to be on my more or less right side, if there is such a thing, and, um, and not upset me too much. Yeah, so they, so they do sort of check in if they're going to do something radical. So they did say, we're going to make... Um, the Yvonne character, forgotten the names of my people in my own novel, uh, Serena Joy. We're going to make her younger than she is in the book. And here's why. And they said, let's see, what else did they say? Um, yeah, they, they had a few other tweaks for the first, first season, but then some of those characters that were minor characters in the first season took on a life of their own because they're actually pretty good. So the Janine character got a much bigger part. Um, so they work with, you know, the dominoes that they had to begin with, but they've added a, a few. Now, but they do, they, they do the essential thing. So I, I said I didn't put anything into the book that hadn't already happened, and they, they're faithful to that. They do their research. They don't put anything in for which they don't have a precedent. Well, there's such a range of historical, factual horrors to draw on, you know. You're, Unfortunately. You don't really need to go beyond that. Yeah, and if you made it really accurate to history, nobody could watch it because it would be too awful. Um, I can't think of anyone else who's in your position that uh, one of your novels became this sort of, you know, multi-season um, television narrative, but then you wrote a sequel. So... Did you manage to keep the testaments very separate from from the TV, or was there any kind of, you know, oh, I think Anne seating? Dowd was quite an inspiration. <laughs> it's hard for me to imagine that character now without hearing her, and uh, she turned up at the launch of the testaments in London, and she did that magic trick that actors can do. She walked out onto the stage, she was endowed, this very nice person, you know, really very lovely person. And then something happened, she gave a kind of a twitch, and she was Aunt Lydia, right before our very eyes. Guess that's called acting, <laughs> yeah. But really quite magic. 
Um, yeah, she does the Aunt Lydia character in the audiobook as well. Ooh, that's her. Yeah. So it's a multi-voice audiobook? Yeah, two, oh, I love three, those. Uh, three. There's three voices in the novel, and uh, therefore three voices in the um, audiobook, plus the fourth, which is the historical notes character. I think multi-voiced audiobooks, they're a fantastic kind of um, descendant of radio drama. They are, exactly, which, which I used to love back in the days of, of radio. You don't remember that, dear, but... <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I wrote a lot for, for radio drama in, the, in, in Britain in the, um, in the 90s, actually. It's a lovely form. I remember when CBC decided not yeah. to do original radio dramas anymore. Silly them. They should come back to it. They, oh. missed, they missed the boat. They could make those things into podcasts Absolutely. and, and uh, sell them on the side. Silly old them. Um, was it harder to write the Testaments, given that, that there was this whole new audience of the TV series who would expect it to all be sort of the same consistent world? Well, it is the same consistent world, but it's, it's set a, quite a few years into the future. Um, so when you're writing in the future, you really have quite a lot of leeway, don't you? <laughs> so I did my research as usual. I actually went to Harvard Yard and stood in the place where I was placing the the aunts uh, to make sure that you could see from that spot what I said you could see in the book. Because if you get that wrong, you are going to get a letter that says, you idiot. Um, <laughs> and, and you don't want to get those letters. There is a whole website dedicated to anachronisms in historical romances, largely to do with clothing. So they're very picky about those details. Fair enough. I had somebody write to me to say that I had mentioned um, you know, air leaking out of a bicycle tire at a point where bicycle tires were still solid, and I'm still embarrassed about that. Yeah, well, this is the kind of thing that can really shoot you down. Uh, so, <laughs> so, and also, even if you're writing about the past, which you think you remember, you don't always remember it as accurately as you think. So I had a girl guide, um, no, it was brownies, brownies, that very weird cult uh, <laughs> involving a giant mushroom, uh, talking owls and fairies. Uh, so that it's what they were singing as they danced around, and I thought I remembered what they were singing, but luckily I went and looked in the handbook of those years, and I had got a couple of things wrong. Uh, so that's the sort of thing you have to check up on. And I'll just ask you this skill-testing question. Once upon a time, all kitchen appliances were white. Uh, then in the 60s, they were things like avocado green and <laughs> harvest gold and that very peculiar shade of brown. But there was a, a short period in between what were they colored in that short period in between? You are right. Turquoise, a, a pastel shade of yellow, sort of a very mm, spring-like pale yellow, and, um, and pink. Those were the, it was a sort of Miami color range. <laughs> it didn't last very long, but it was quite attractive. And they're now making replicas of some of those appliances in those colors. How did I want, I told you this was gonna go off the rails. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
<laughs> yes, but it does annoy me when I say, see, for instance, film set in a period such as 1955, and they've got things wrong. You know, they have an idea of what they think it looked like, but it didn't actually look like that. I have to say, my experience of, of making films very limited so far, we did just two, but in each case I felt very relaxed that there seemed to be specialists who were on each topic and I didn't have to oversee them. For instance, when I was first led into the set of the room in Toronto, um, I, I crouched down and saw that the electrical outlet, someone had drawn a little face on it, the way you would if you're five years old, and I thought, okay, I don't need to be hovering over these people, you know, they're each of them thinking like like Jack at age five. So they've gotten into it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so the costume designer for Handmaids called Anne Crabtree really did try out Fifty Shades of Red. Isn't that good? Yeah, I love it. <laughs> Get the exact one that would look, look right on film and go with the other colors which he also chose. Now that's attention to detail. In writing the Testaments, did it feel harder because there was this? Well, I suppose with a sequel, people are I, always. I had to make a cheat it. sheet. Oh. Um, so I, I put a lot. I had a copy of the original text, and I'm, it's, it's, it's filled with post-it notes of things that I had to remember that I had done, uh, so as not to contradict them. Yeah, I certainly had to do that. There's consistency, but then also there's expectation. There's people being attached to certain characters or, or wanting certain storylines. You can't anticipate that. You can't, you can't ever anticipate the reactions of an individual reader, uh, which can vary widely, as you know. I loved this. I hated this. I threw it across the room. I worship it. Um, and and you, you can't know that. It's, it's, you are throwing your your work into the sea. And uh, it will wash up somewhere and maybe somebody will open the bottle and not be able to read the message. It happens all the time. Uh, or they read it and don't like it. <laughs> or a genie comes out. You, you just don't know. <laughs> you don't know. Um, I'm going to ask one last question before we start turning to these ones. Um, I'm not going to ask you about the many um, works of yours that are somewhere in development. Because oh, yeah, I know yeah, yeah, things, yeah. They can go on forever, and you never know what's going to happen. But if you could nominate one of them to push into the light first, which, which of your unfilmed works do you think could be great and you would right like that to happen? Right now? Yeah. Uh, well, Cat's Eye is in development. People have tried it before. It's hard to do, uh, which is why they didn't succeed. <laughs> Uh, so we'll see what happens with that. And this is a great age for very naturalistic child acting, I think. Finally, could, yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, I think get, it is. You could get great and performances. And it's, it's also an age at which um, mm, we have now accepted the idea that little girls can be really mean. <laughs> you know, there was a period there when it, you weren't supposed to say that because all women were supposed to be angelic, including eight-year-olds. Uh, which, if you've ever actually been to school, you know isn't uh, tr <laughs> true. <laughs> if you've ever actually been an eight-year-old, you know that's not true. Uh, so yeah, I think we we now are at a point where we can accept the fact that uh, female people are people. <laughs> Excellent. Pick a question. All right. What? Uh, oh, Naomi, you naughty person. 
Um, what advice do you have for dealing emotionally with the disappointing element of an adaptation? <laughs> All right, I'll tell you a story, Naomi. Graham, whom you knew, uh, when he was a young man, bought with his very scant number of dollars a really super light meter to go with his camera. And in those days, you didn't fly across the Atlantic, you went across the Atlantic in a ship because there were not yet any transatlantic commercial flights of airplanes. So he was on this ship and he was taking a picture of something leaning over the railing and he dropped his light meter <laughs> into the Atlantic Ocean. And he said, well, there it goes. <laughs> so, yes, it can be disappointing, but there it goes. <laughs> There's nothing you can do about it, and why waste your emotional ener energy being disappointed? So, turn to something else in your life that doesn't disappoint you and focus on that. And this comes from many, many long years of experience, Naomi. <laughs> I, I can think of a few tears I've shed during the process. There are moments when you get so caught up in the process and then if there's some awful tussle with the director, you know, a few tears have been shed, but never at, at the end, never at the point where a film's coming out. At that point, I have achieved a kind of calm distance from the whole thing. But sometimes in the middle, it's hard not to be, you know, well, how upset do you get when you, when you get a bad hand at bridge? <laughs> well, don't answer, very upset. Uh, but it, it's luck of the draw. You know, you have no control over it. You, you play the hand as best you can, but you have no control over the hand that you have been dealt. So disappointing things that happen in the film are part of the hand that you have been dealt. I find it helps to remember that it's all extra. You know, what we do yeah, is extra. write our books. Yeah. Or, um, and I've got some very good advice for not winning prizes, too. <laughs> <laughs> what, do you, what do you do? Have you... Smile on through. <laughs> I picture a die revolving in the air, because usually there are maybe six of you shortlisted or five. It's always something like that. So I think it's just like a die, and I picture it, and I say, what are the odds? Yeah, no, what are the slim. odds exactly? It's unlikely to be a four if I'm number four. Unlikely, unlikely. And this helps yeah, keep the smile good, on my have face. Have a good time at the dinner. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> Handmaid's Tale did not win the Booker. Kingsley Amos won it. But it had only sold, at the point at which it was nominated, it sold this many copies and then stopped in Britain, uh, where they did not at that point believe in governments doing stupid things. Uh, <laughs> and evil and bad and right-wing things. They didn't believe in that yet. They'd, they'd had their civil war in the 17th century over religion, so they weren't going to have another one, thought they. Uh, so they thought jolly good yarn and weird North American stuff. Um, so it stopped selling, but when it was nominated, it started selling again. Uh, and then it never stopped. So just getting nominated, you can say, uh, that was... Good luck. Yeah, so, you know, enjoy the overdone chicken. And uh, <laughs> be happy it's not underdone. That would be worse. 
I'm good to address this question. Can you speak about experiences of adaptation to other media beyond TV and film? Yes, I would say um, I've um, adapted some of my works for theater and it's bliss because <laughs> it has all the social advantages of adapting for film. You know, the kind of lunches and a table read and rehearsals and all the sort of social fun, but they're very respectful to the writer. Are they? Um, yeah, I've found. Um, <laughs> by comparison, by comparison with TV and film. So yeah, I've less power than when it's fiction, but certainly way more than when it's TV and film. Um, and so um, yeah, I, I find that theatre adaptation is sort of at the sweet spot between being all on your own in your little lonely castle, <laughs> metaphorically, and being on set and nobody knows who you are, and they they tell you don't walk down that street, something's being filmed, and you're like, I know, it's mine. <laughs> You know. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I, I would highly recommend theatre adaptation as that that sweet spot. You know. well, would you have you any stories for us about adaptations other than TV and film? Well, we just had a brilliant ballet of the Mad Adam trilogy with Wayne McGregor being the choreographer, uh, very unusual choreographer. He didn't get a start in classical ballet at all. He got it in salsa dancing. Wow. Um, so I didn't know what he was going to do. Uh, all he did was say, before I gave him permission to do it, it's not going to be linear. That's all I knew. And since he did, wouldn't let anybody into rehearsals, none of us knew what to expect. Uh, and it was a brilliant raving success, and they're doing it in Covent Garden in uh, 2025. Wow. Uh, so that's a happy story of adaption to ballet, which you would not have, you, you would have thought, you're insane. You know, why are you? Why are you even thinking of this? But he was um, a happy opera story, which was a Danish story to begin with. Uh, I was in Copenhagen. I was staying at the Hotel Anglaise, which has a great big red carpet in the foyer, or did then. And this extremely tall Danish composer turned up to to have a meeting, and he actually knelt on the giant red carpet as if he were proposing. <laughs> Maybe it was to get down to my level. Uh, and he said, I've been given a commission by the Royal Danish Opera Company. It's the first commission in 34 years that they have given, and I have to do The Handmaid's Tale. I must do The Handmaid's Tale, and if I can't do The Handmaid's Tale, I won't do any opera at all. And I thought, you're insane. Uh, and then I thought, well, what could, it, what could it be? Either it will be terrible, and then we'll never hear any more of it, and, or it will be a success, and that will be wonderful. So I said, go ahead. That was Paul Reuters, and it's a pretty good opera. Yeah, I've seen it now in several different adaptations. So that's a good story. So you, you let people play in your sandbox if you think either they're insane uh, or... <laughs> Or it can, it can either be terrible or great, uh, or if you trust their confidence. Uh, there's a question here asking about um, writing child characters. Yeah, I have done this quite a lot. I mean, my, my kids tease me that, you know, they can't imagine what I had to say before they were born because everything I've written since they were born seems to have children in it. Um, I, I think writing children is, is wonderful because they are newer to this world, so it's a bit like what 
what was described as the school of Martian poetry after a poem by Craig Rain. Um, you know, kids are, are new to this world initially and have to have things explained to them. And as you're explaining things to them, you, you hear how odd our arrangements are, you know, when you have to justify to a child how the world works. So I think they provide a, a naturally fresh perspective. So that's one reason I like them, you know. What about children in your work? We've mentioned, um, for instance, Cat's Eye, the kind of, you know, you know, genuine yeah. hostility of um, girls. So writing about children and and childhood, things that happen to children are, are, are very major for them because it's the first time whatever it is has, has happened, so it makes a big impact. Um, but also, if they've been on Earth for this long, this thing that's happening takes up a much greater percentage of that time than... Um, Shall I say when you're 83? <laughs> it has to be a big. It has to be something big nowadays too. Well, it's not that things don't make an impact, but they they don't make the same kind of impact once you're an adult. They can make different kinds of impacts that can be pretty earth-shattering and horrible. But but as a proportion of the time you've spent on Earth, they're not as long. And also, you have more perspective. So I sometimes say to 18-year-olds, I think this is pretty tragic right now, uh, but in 15 years, you're going to be laughing about it. And in 50 years, you're not going to remember that person's name. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, what's his name? <laughs> Who was that? <laughs> I think often writers have to sort of almost artificially create a situation in which your character is going to go through big changes and the, the events that happen have to be very high stakes for them. But, you know, making your character a 10-year-old is a very quick way to get there and have everything loom large. Do you think we will get to see the Mad Adam trilogy adapted for the screen? Answer, it's in development. <laughs> <laughs> and that's been going on for a while. Uh, your turn. I haven't got any better at guessing whether something in development is going to you never come to fruition know. or not. You have no. no idea. They can start out so hopeful. The only time in which I, I had a bad feeling from the start is when the person I was agreeing to work with seemed kind of stupid to me. But I really wanted to adapt <laughs> the, the source text in question, which is not mine. So for the sake of the source text, I said yes. But afterwards, I thought, ah, oh, why did I take on that person? So I, perhaps only working with really intelligent people is a good, is a good rule to go by. Does the thinking process for screenwriting interfere or help with your fiction writing? That is a good question, actually. Um, I would certainly say I, I don't ever try and make my fiction be like film or TV. I wouldn't want you know, it, it all to funnel that way. Because in a way, the real pleasure of writing a book is that it, it only has to be a book. So, so no, I would never say to myself, like, you know, will I make sure this would work as film before I write it as fiction? That's perverse. But I, I do feel screenwriting, because there's so much pragmatic chopping and changing and cutting things out and moving them around, it probably gives you a slightly more you know, um, pragmatic approach to your fiction, too, that you realize you know, you're not going to destroy the book if you have to move a scene around. Um, so I think, for me, it probably has been useful. What do you think? Well, um, in fiction, all you have is words on the page. You, you don't have any sound effects. You've got no musical score. You don't have any actors. Um, I'm helping out a person who's mostly a playwright who's writing a novel. And if you're writing a play, you're depending on actors to fill in for you. 
uh, you're giving them dialogue, and then you're expecting they're going to make something of that. But you don't have that when you're writing a, a novel. You have to do that. So I keep telling him, okay, first of all, you don't have to have a person described as whisking five eggs. You know, one will do. These are, and we can imagine the others. Um, these are stage directions. So stage directions are different. You write differently from when you're writing what's going to happen in, in a novel. Uh, so it's only words, but it, it is the closest, as far as the brain is concerned, it's the closest to lived experience. Because you yourself, the reader, are filling in a lot. Uh, you are deciding what Mr. Darcy looks like, if you haven't seen that film. <laughs> Otherwise, you will forever see him coming out of a lake in a wet shirt, which doesn't <laughs> it's not happen in the book. <laughs> yes, she falls in love with him in the, in the film when she sees that wet shirt, whereas in the book, she falls in love with him when she sees his big country mansion. <laughs> a very pragmatic person, Jane Austen. Um, so yeah, so your your brain is actually living um, the experience as you were reading about it, whereas in, in watching a film, you are a more passive entity. You're being given a lot of things. Things are being thrown at you. Um, you are hearing and, and seeing, whereas when you're reading a novel, it's you, the reader, who are doing the hearing and, and seeing. I think when I've adapted a work of mine to theater and film, it actually makes me more aware of the differences between those yeah, mediums. Yeah, they are very different forms. And in each case, I feel I want to lean into what that medium does well. You know, like, like with theater, I always feel like it shouldn't try and do impeccable verisimilitude the way film tries to do. You know, theater is different. We can tell it's fake, right? So you might as well lean into the theatricality and the kind of wonderful sort of, you know, effortless imaginative leaps it can make. You know, somebody pulls out a red handkerchief and we say, oh, his throat's been slit, fine. So um, theater could do that kind of leap. Um, so yes, I certainly would, would never want to end up with kind of a homogenous writing style for all these. No, they wouldn't work at all. Yeah. They yeah. are different, very different. And speaking of different forms, if you haven't seen Frankenstein revived, highly recommended. There are no words in it. Wow. <laughs> there are no words in it, although it is based on a very wordy book. Yeah. Um, I've certain, certainly found with screenplays sometimes that they can take the words, the dialogue out of one of your scenes. And yet, because you planned the scene as a whole and you put the sort of emotion in there, that even if they strip away the dialogue, um, or sometimes they'll use the dialogue elsewhere, but the, the scene still works. It's, it's very odd that they can take out, you know, the bits that you thought of as the meat of the scene, the words, and yet, you know, the flavor remains. But I think perhaps the fact that the words were there in the first place did have an impact on them, and certainly... Yeah, so the, the first movie of Handmaid's Tale, Harold Pinter wrote voiceover. And Natasha Richardson played against her own voiceover, which she had recorded. But then the director, who was in his minimalist phase, took out the voiceover, which left her feeling quite flat and as if she wasn't having emotions. Um, whereas in the TV adaptation, they, put, they did use voiceover so that she could, uh, she could be blank-faced while people were saying these horrible things to her. Um, but then you heard what she was actually thinking. 
I think there has to be a really good reason for voiceover, and living in a surveillance yeah. state is one of those reasons. Yeah, Whereas often, has, yeah. I feel it's just used as kind of unnecessary explanation. Yeah, well, there, there was, a, at the Volker-Schlorndorf moment when he was directing that, there, there was a, a bias against voiceover, that you shouldn't use it. Um, but, but I think there are moments when you kind of have to. But it shouldn't be just the automatic way that literary novels end up on screen. You know, the kind of pedigree literary fiction voiceover, I think of it. I think know. that's from olden days. Uh, do you think anybody does that anymore? I don't know. I, I've, I've heard some. Um, You're not going to tell us. <laughs> don't want to name and shame. No, all right. Um, both of us are being asked here. I heard an author quoted once saying, writers keep writing the same book over and over. In what ways is that true for you or not? I don't think anybody's going to answer that. <laughs> well, I, get, I get accused of writing confinement narratives um, a lot, and, and I, I wish people would understand it's, it's not that I'm cruel. It's just I find it much easier if I lock my characters in some kind of room yeah. or island or sick room or hospital ward. It's just they're more manageable. You know, if I, <laughs> I know where the furniture is, I know who's where, and I know who heard which bits of dialogue. I just, I, I don't know how people write epic novels, so it's, yeah. it's just uh, an inability in me, really. Well, I had for a while, why do you always have female narrators? So I wrote Oryx and Craig, in which it's a male narrator. And the first thing they said was, why wasn't she wi a woman? <laughs> 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 so you can't, uh, you can't anticipate these, these questions, and... Really, the thing is, do, do what you're able to, and, and do what you do well. And um, that seems fairly simple. Do you have a final question from your bundle to choose for us? Yes, what is the meaning of life? <laughs> <laughs> I won't tell the shaggy dog story that answers that question with, life is a fountain. <laughs> that seems a good moment to wind, wind it up. Yeah. Thank you so Life much, everybody. Thank you, Margaret Atwood. Okay, so I think I'd love to talk about just how complex the process mm -hmm. of adaptation is and how many different goes, how much stop and start is involved mm -hmm. and how the excitement of having a project in development as a writer who has had option deals, you know, the feeling of getting that option deal and being so excited about it and mm -hmm. having it announced to the world. And then, you know, the option deal expires. And then that company says either they want to extend or they don't want to extend. Mm -hmm. And that can be very heartbreaking as the writer and as the art, you know, the art, it's like energy. It it doesn't die <laughs> um, just because the the vessel that it that contains it yes. may no longer exist. The essence of it must go somewhere, and I know for myself it goes into my other projects. Anyway, enough about me and my process. I think what fascinates me about can I ask you something about you and your process though? Okay, sure, because I don't know anything about this. This is your world, and in one of our earlier episodes, someone asks Margaret if you have to write something knowing the genre. Mm -hmm. She, the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. Do you believe that you can write a novel knowing one day you want it to be a TV show? I think you absolutely can. I've never written a novel. I have no intention of writing a novel. Mm -hmm. But I know that when I make a short film, it's with the intention of it becoming a feature film. Okay. Um, or I have 
you know, done that. Mm-hmm. Okay, enough about you. Enough about me. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, but again, like taking from what it means to go from one, to go from a novel to a feature film mm-hmm. uh, or a TV series is to go from one person as a writer to 200 people on a film. Right. Which means that the project is never just yours. And I love that both Margaret and Emma mm-hmm. touch on that. And in finding who those 200 people may be, or some of them may be, Margaret says something about waiting for the one who loves you as far as her relationship with Sarah Pauly in getting uh, yes. Alias Grace made, which I haven't yet seen. And I'm going home to do exactly that today. I'm going to be watching that entire miniseries today. I have a copy of that book. I got it at the Stratford Valley Village. Mm. There were two next to each other. And the one I picked up, I looked I looked inside, and on the inside cover it said, Happy birthday, Rebecca, on January 7th, <laughs> which is the name I was first given <laughs> and is the day I was born. And it was from her mother. Whoa! And now it's mine. Whoa! And uh, excellent book. So let's start the series together. Yes. Deal. Also, that's so interesting because... I I have an affinity for finding books on the street. Mm -hmm. One of the best books I've ever read, I found on Bathurst, Middlesex by Jeffrey Eugenides. (laughs) (laughs) But I also found a copy of Room (gasps) in a park in Toronto. And it's sitting on my bookshelf in Toronto right now. Emma and Margaret are throwing their texts into our path. They really are. From where? (laughs) (laughs) She looks up. Okay, well, we have plans. We do. Let's go. Let's get it. Thanks so much for listening. This event was recorded as part of the Mian Forum in front of a live audience at the Tom Patterson Theatre in Stratford, Canada. Be sure to subscribe to keep up with the rich mind of theatrical content housed by the Stratford Festival streaming service, Stratfest at Home. It takes you, our listeners, to make this possible. It also takes the help of our dear collaborators. Support for the Mian Forum is generously provided by Kelly and Michael Mian and the TR Mian Family Foundation. Original score for the Everyday Forum podcast was provided by Hilary Adams. Production support by Yash Chabria and Chris Von Kleist. Special thanks to Michael Adams, Jennifer Lee, Greg Doherty, Michael Duncan, and Kendallin Bishop. Mian Forum team... Renata Hansen, Mira Henderson, James Hyatt, Danielle Walcott, and forum manager Gregory McLaughlin. Me and forum director, Julie Miles. Associate director of digital content, Jenna Dixon. Finally, thanks to artistic director, Anthony Cimolino, and executive director, Anita Gaffney.